0: Physics World.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Mateen Durrani, and in this episode, we are going to be revealing the Physics World Top 10 Breakthrough for 2021. This podcast and the rest of our 2021 Breakthrough of the Year coverage is sponsored by Blue Force. Now, taking through your choices, I'm joined by four Physics World editors Margaret Harris, Tammy Freeman, Michael Banks, and Hamish Johnson. Hi, everyone.
0: Hi, Mateen. Hello.
2: Hi.
1: Now, every December, we sit down and we choose Physics World's top 10 breakthroughs of the year from the hundreds of research papers that we've covered each year. And so what we do is we all bring our nominations to the table, have a bit of a debate, and then we vote on what we think the top 10 should be. So you might be wondering what criteria we use. Well, we've had these for a few years. So the first criteria to be included in the top 10 list is that... The research has to have been reported in physics world in 2021 and then there's three other criteria so the work has to have a significant advance in knowledge or understanding the work has to be important for scientific progress or the development of real world applications and finally it's got to be of general interest to physics world readers and listeners so, now it's time to reveal our top 10. And we're going to start with three entries that are concerned with the delicate business of controlling quantum systems. So, Hamish, you're going to talk about a breakthrough with atomic nuclei.
3: Hi, Mateen. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is work that was done by Jorg Evers and colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics in Heidelberg and the Deutsche Electron Synchrotron and both of those facilities are in Germany, and also at the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility, or ESRF, in France. Now, Evers and colleagues are the first to achieve the quantum control of the states of an ensemble of nuclei, and in this case, it's an isotope of iron. So really what they've done here is they've achieved control of the quantum states of a group of nuclei. And they've done this using two ultra-short pulses of light from ESRF. And the key to their success was to adjust the phase of the pulses so that the nuclei are toggled between a quantum state where they absorb photons and a quantum state where they emit photons. Now, this was an experimental tour de force. It's very, very difficult to sort of manipulate the quantum states of nuclei. And there could also be some practical applications in the future.
1: I was going to say, Hamish, that sounds quite cool, controlling the quantum state of nuclei. So what could you do with that, uh, that work um, in the future?
3: Well, sort of a big, a big goal is the creation of nuclear clocks. Now these are like atomic clocks, but they would be much more accurate and much more reliable. The reason is that nuclear transitions tend to have higher frequencies than atomic transitions, and this makes them better clocks. And also, nuclei are much less susceptible to environmental noise than atoms, and noise is a big problem when it comes to building a very good atomic clock. And another possible application, and I have to say, I don't really understand this one, but it does sound really fascinating, is the creation of batteries that can store large amounts of energy.
1: All right, lovely stuff, Hamish. So that's the first entry in the list. And next up, we've got two studies, actually. Again, these are at big science facilities, and they're both to do with innovative ways to cool particles. And they've been developed by two teams at two different CERN experiments, now, the first one's at the Alpha Collaboration, which calls antihydrogen atoms. So, Tammy, you're going to tell us about this one. Why have they done this one? What's this one all about?
0: OK, so the overall aim of Alpha, which is the antihydrogen laser physics apparatus. Um, they're looking to investigate why there's so much more matter than antimatter in the universe by looking for tiny differences between particles and their antimatter equivalents. And the team's doing this by studying antihydrogen which comprises a positron and an antiproton. Now, as with standard hydrogen, cooling the anti-hydrogen makes it easier to study its quantum properties.
1: Yeah, so Tammy, how do they, they manage to cool that stuff then?
0: Well, many techniques for cooling matter are simply not suitable for antimatter. But one potential approach is Doppler cooling. So here, atoms are irradiated with a laser frequency just below that needed to excite an electronic transition. Now, an atom moving towards the beam will see the radiation blue shifted and may absorb a photon. When this excited state decays, it emits more energy than it had originally absorbed, and this cools the sample. Now, this is a widely used technique, but for hydrogen, there's a big problem in that you need to use a UV laser with wavelengths around 121 nanometers. Unfortunately, no such lasers exist. And attempts to create continuous wave lasers at this wavelength have failed. So for this work, the team decided to try a pulse laser. And they managed to build a device that produces laser pulses at 121.6 nanometers. So that's ideal. Now, they use this new laser to cool around a thousand antihydrogen atoms, which they created and confined in a magnetic trap. And this is the first demonstration of laser cooling of anti-hydrogen atoms. Now they didn't state a final temperature in their paper, but they report that the atoms were moving more slowly than had previously been achieved. So they then measured a key electronic transition in this cooled anti-hydrogen and they found that the cooling enabled improved precision of the measurements. In future work they'll report a comparison of these anti-hydrogen results with measurements of hydrogen and they also plan to use this new cooling technique to study other properties of antihydrogen.
1: So, thanks, Tammy. That sounds, dare I say, pretty cool uh, cooling antihydrogen atoms. <laughs> and now, this, the second study that we've picked uh, uh, from CERN, which is the BASE collaboration, now they've used a different approach to cool protons. So, do you want to tell us about that one?
0: Sure, yeah. So, this study was from BASE, which is the baryon anti baryon symmetry experiment. And again, their overarching aim is to investigate any asymmetry between matter and antimatter, in this case, by comparing the magnetic moments of protons and antiprotons. And by using particles cooled to just above absolute zero, they should be able to make really precise comparisons. So the cooling technique they used, it involves laser cooling, which I've just described, but this can't be used directly with protons or antiprotons as they lack electronic structure. So instead, what the team did was they laser cooled beryllium ions and then used a method called sympathetic cooling, in which you cool one charged particle by bringing it into thermal contact with another charged particle at a lower temperature. So basically, they used the cold beryllium ions to chill the protons. Now, to use this approach with antiprotons, which you can't put in a single trap with matter, They demonstrated an approach using two penning iron traps placed nine centimetres apart and connected via a superconducting circuit. So you've got a single proton in one of the traps and the laser-cooled beryllium ions in the other. And the team showed that it's possible to transfer energy via this circuit from the proton to the cooled ions.
1: And what about antiprotons, Tammy? Any movement on that?
0: Well, this study was performed in a laboratory at the University of Mainz in Germany and using protons. Um, but the researchers say the technique could easily be applied to antiprotons. So, in this work, they managed to reduce the proton's temperature by 85% down to about 2.5 K. And in future experiments, um, they hope to achieve temperatures of a few tens of millikelvin in just a few seconds. And this should allow them to probe matter-antimatter symmetry with a much higher precision. Thanks, Tammy. So those
1: two entries, those are all about uh, cooling stuff to very low temperatures and uh, looking at antimatter-matter symmetry. Um, thanks, Tammy. The next one on our list is, uh, Hamish, you're going to talk about this. It's something called Pauli blocking like Neither you nor I had heard of this. Well, I'd never heard of this till, till I read the, read the research story. But it's something that's been uh, some um, interesting progress on it this year. So tell us what that's about, Pauli blocking
3: yeah, this place in the top ten goes to three independent groups for being the first to see Pauli blocking in an ultra-cold gas of fermionic atoms. They are Christian Sanner and colleagues at GILA in the U.S., Amita Deb and Niels Shargard at the University of Otega in New Zealand, and Wolfgang Ketterle and colleagues at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the U.S., Pauli blocking is a consequence of the Pauli uncertainty principle in an ultra-cold fermionic gas, and it was first predicted 30 years ago. The idea is that when fermionic atoms are chilled to near absolute zero, they fill available quantum states to the Fermi level. And so that means that they're behaving much like electrons in a solid Now, the blocking bit refers to the fact that most atoms in the gas are unable to make transitions to neighbouring quantum states, because those states are full or blocked.
1: So, Hamish, you've got these atoms that can't make these transitions to the neighbouring quantum states uh, because they're full. So, I mean, how do you actually, how did they see this? How did they observe that?
3: Well, what the teams did is they shone light on the gas, and normally photons of light will scatter from atoms in the gas, and this will stop some of the light from traveling through the sample. However, when the gas is cold enough for Pauli blocking, most of the atoms can't recoil from a photon because this involves a transition to a neighboring quantum state. And the upshot of this is that Pauli blocking causes the gas to become more transparent as it is cooled, because this scattering is suppressed. And that's exactly what the three teams saw. And you might be thinking, well, that's interesting. Uh, You've got a transparent ultra-cold gas. What good is that? Well, it turns out that Ultra cold gases have, you know, some practical applications, including um, atomic clocks and quantum network devices. And, um, you know, being a- able to manipulate this Pauli blocking could lead to better quantum devices.
1: Thanks, Hamish. So that was Pauli blocking seen in an ultra cold fermionic gas um, becoming more transparent. So that's fascinating. Next up on our shortlist, it's a breakthrough in optics and involves researchers making 30 lasers emitters one. That sounds pretty interesting. Margaret, do you want to talk about that one?
2: So this is the work of, by Sebastian Klimt of the University of Würzburg, Germany, Mordecai Sevegev of the Technion Israel Institute of Technology, and colleagues. And they created an array of 30 vertical cavity surface-emitting lasers, or vexels, that all behave as a single coherent light source. And what's special about that is that the Vexel is a very industrially useful type of laser. They have a very low fabrication cost, and they've actually become much more widely used in the past couple of years. Um, If you have a newish smartphone that does facial recognition, it's probably got some infrared Vexels in it, because that's what projects a network of dots onto your face and recognizes it as you. But because they're pretty small—I mean, they obviously fit in your smartphone, so they've got to be small—each individual Vexel doesn't emit much power. And getting large arrays of them to emit all at the same frequency has been really challenging. So what the team at Würzburg and Technion did is they arranged their vexels in a geometry that uses the concept of topological insulators. That is, a quantum material that are insulated in their bulk, but conducting on their surface. To sort of force light from each laser in the array to flow through all the others, acting as kind of a seed beam that keeps everything at the same frequency. And the result of this is that their new design could be scaled up to incorporate, you know, hundreds of individual lasers. And this is something they're actively working on.
1: Okie doke. Thanks, Margaret. So those are 30 lasers that emit all at once. So next up on our top 10 physics world breakthroughs for 2021, we've got three advances that were made at big science facilities. Now, the first one is about a mysterious anomaly in the value of the muons, magnetic moment. So, Hamish, you're going to talk about this one. So, the muon's magnetic moment.
3: Yeah, that's right. So, for for the past decade, or actually, I think, more than a decade, the, the measured value of the muon's magnetic moment has been, it's significantly different from the theoretical value. And this is very exciting, because it could point to new physics beyond the current standard model. Of particle physics. I mean, you know, I suppose this is how, how physics works, and particularly particle physics. Um, measurements are made, theories are drawn up, and if the two disagree, it's very exciting. It's very boring when uh, uh, an experiment agrees with theory. So we've known about this anomaly for a while, and now physicists working on the muon g-2 collaboration have made the best measurement yet of the muon's magnetic moment. And this measurement extends the statistical significance of the discrepancy with theory to 4.2 sigma. Now, that's not quite the five sigma that's required for a discovery in particle physics, but it'll certainly get theoretical physicists thinking about why theory and experiment differ. And who knows, this could lead to the discovery of some exciting new physics. Now, the team measured the muon's magnetic moment by storing the particles in a ring and then watching the moments rotate or process in an Applied magnetic field.
1: So they measured this um, this effect in uh, by storing these muons in a big, big, fat ring. But there's an interesting story, isn't there, Hamish? It's been uh, it's
3: moved around North America a bit, hasn't it? That's right. The ring is at Fermilab near Chicago, but originally it was at Brookhaven Lab near New York City, and that's where the sort of initial measurements of the muon's magnetic moment were made. But since then, the the, the Ring has, has taken this epic journey on a barge to Chicago. And it it was sort of loaded up on Long Long Island, where Brookhaven is, onto a barge. It was taken down the Atlantic seaboard. I think it was taken around Florida into the Gulf of Mexico. And then it started moving up the U.S.'s very extensive inland waterway system all the way up to Chicago. And... um, a few years ago, when this happened, there were some fantastic photos showing this ring, which is j- just as you would expect—a ring sitting on a barge, um, you know, sort of going uh, under bridges and um, along canals. Um, you know, sort of people standing uh, on the shore waving—that sort of thing. Um, you know, is a real epic journey. I mean, you know, n- New York to Chicago is—it's is, a pretty good, pretty far distance, but they took definitely the long way around. On on this barge. Because I'm a bit, a
1: bit rusty on my geography, wasn't
3: it quicker to go via the Great Lakes, Hamish? That was something that I was thinking about, because an alternative route would have been to go up to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and then up the the St. Lawrence Seaway into the Great Lakes, and then to Chicago. And I, so, I sort of wondered why they didn't take that route. There were probably practical reasons why they didn't do that. And of course, that would involve going mostly through Canada. Um, so, so maybe there was a bit of a PR <laughs> aspect to this, you know, sort of getting getting the ring to go through, you know, sort of the the, the southern US and, and, and sort of the, the the Midwestern Heartland, you know it was definitely a really good story. But you know, regardless of the route that was taken, um, it, it, it's an amazing uh, journey. Um, it would have been a you know quite the journey going up the Great Lakes as well. So yeah, that, that in itself is, is a great story. but even better, they managed to get it to Fermilab, set it up, uh, improve it, and and make another interesting measurement that could lead to some new physics.
1: All right. Thanks, Amy So that was the muons magnetic moment measured at Fermilab. So the next entry in our top 10 breakthroughs of 2021, this is another U.S. lab, and this is a milestone for laser fusion. So, Michael Banks, you're going you're to tell us all about this one.
4: Yeah, that's right. So this breakthrough is all about fusion, um, which is a process that powers the stars. And it happens when you get two light nuclei, fuse them together to produce a heavier nucleus, while also at the same time releasing energy that you can then use. So, there are two um, conventional ways to do this here on Earth. So, one is magnetic confinement, in which you use giant magnets to confine a plasma of nuclei that then undergo fusion, while the other is known as inertial confinement fusion. And this is what happens at the National Ignition Facility, which is based in California. So inertial confinement mostly involves training a laser beam onto a tiny sample, which contains tritium and deuterium, so two isotopes of hydrogen. This causes it to implode, then it heats up rapidly. And under these conditions, then the nuclei fuse and release energy. So the ultimate goal at NIF is demonstrating so-called ignition. And this is when the fusion reactions generate at least as much energy as the laser systems put in. So NIF turned on around a decade ago, um, but those initial efforts to achieve an were quite wide of the mark and disappointing and actually flummoxing many scientists at the time. Um, the energies that they achieved were around 0.1 megajoule, which was well short of the 1.9 megajoule um, that the NIFs lasers uh, generate. So, in the decades since, researchers then have been making improvements, such as refining the precision of the laser pulse. Um, And this year, those efforts paid off in spectacular fashion when researchers achieved an energy yield of more than 1.3 megajoules. So, this was a huge increase. It was about 70% of the energy that the laser pulse um, delivered to the sample. So this result was actually called by some as the most significant advance in inertial fusion um, since it began way back in the early 1970s. And indeed, some scientists actually suggest that NIF researchers indeed did actually achieve ignition because there was actually more energy released than actually absorbed by the fuel capsule itself. So in any case, um, whether you think it achieved ignition or it didn't, NIF has certainly set down a, a worthy marker Um, That certainly warrants inclusion in the top 10 breakthroughs this year.
1: Well, I'm sure if a facility's got the word ignition in the name of the facility. You want to make sure you get ignition at some point, not the national 70% ignition facility. But um, yeah, that sounds a a big, big breakthrough. And I know something that we've been, well, you have been keeping an eye on for quite a long time. So that definitely uh, made it onto our list. Um, Thanks, Michael. So the next one on the list of the top 10 breakthroughs of the year, it's to do with supermassive black holes. We're talking big science. These are massive, massive things, aren't they, Hamish?
3: Yeah, supermassive black holes. They're, they're found at the centers of, of many galaxies, and they can weigh in at millions or, or even billions of times the mass of the sun. And b- back in 2019, researchers working on the Event Horizon Telescope took the first image of the shadow of a supermassive black hole that's sort of the regions just surrounding the uh, the object. And for taking that image, they bagged the Physics World 2019 Breakthrough of the Year for their efforts. And now they're on our shortlist again. What they've done is they've focused on the ring of light that surrounds the shadow Of that black hole, Uh, it's called M87 star. And if you're if you're familiar with that, actually M87 star or M87 (laughs) asterix, I'm not sure exactly how to say it, Um, but it's a, a black hole at the center of the galaxy M87. And if you're familiar with that image, you know that there's sort of an orangey uh, bit of light surrounding the black hole. And what these researchers have done is um, they've created yet another iconic image that shows the, the polarization of the light in that ring. And this polarization is related to the very strong magnetic fields in the region surrounding this supermassive black hole. So essentially what they've done is they've managed to take a snapshot of the magnetic fields surrounding a black hole, which is an amazing accomplishment.
1: So if you can see the magnetic fields around a black hole, Hamish, what could that tell you? Why, Why is that
3: interesting? Well, these magnetic fields are believed to be involved in the creation of the huge jets of matter and radiation that are emitted from some supermassive black holes. So this latest research could lead to further insights into the nature of supermassive black holes, and that's of of real interest to astronomers, because, you know, because these supermassive black holes are at the centers of most galaxies uh, understanding how they form and they and how they behave could provide really important insights into how galaxies form so um you know a, a top priority for astronomers
1: okay lovely stuff hamish so that's seven out of the top 10 that we've been through so far so three to go on our list um so the next next up on the list we've got um some research on the Weird and Wonderful World of Quantum Mechanics. And I know everyone loves quantum mechanics, well, well I certainly do. And this is about wave-particle duality. So Margaret, you're going to tell us why this one's on the Physics World top 10 list.
2: Yeah, so this breakthrough is the work of two experimentalists, Tai Hyun Yoon and Min Cho, who are both at the Institute for Basic Science in South Korea, and also two theorists, who are Xiao Feng Qian of the Stevens Institute of Technology and Girish Agarwal, who's at Texas A&M, which are both in the US. And what Yoon and Cho did was to quantify how much waveness and particleness a photon has. And perhaps even more importantly, I mean that's, that's exciting enough. You, know, you, you think of wave-particle duality as this really nebulous thing, but no, actually, it's, it's quantifiable. You can show how much how much of a wave and how much of a particle a photon is behaving like. And perhaps even more importantly, they also showed that they can control this waveness and particleness by having very precise control over which of two crystals in their experiment would emit a pair of photons. And they zeroed in on a sort of in-between situation where the emission likelihood, which is known as the source purity, was neither heavily skewed towards one crystal, which would produce a very particle-like outcome, nor exactly equal, which would produce very wave-like photons. And in this region, the source purity, the interference pattern visibility, V, and the path distinguishability, P, they follow a Pythagorean relationship, so p squared plus v squared is equal to the square of the source probability, which is a really simple mathematical relationship. And this relationship was predicted in 2020 by Xi'an and Agarwal. So it's a very nice example of theorists and experimentalists both sort of making contribution. The theorists predicted, said, hey, you should be able to find this relationship if you can get the source purity good enough. And the experimentalist said, oh, that sounds cool. We can do that. So as for why it's on our list. Um, I think it's on our list because we really love a good experiment that probes the foundations of quantum theory. And we like this one because it treats the photon's waveness and particleness not as something mysterious and esoteric, but as a thing you can measure and understand. It does also have some potential applications in quantum information. And I should also say that the level of optical control the experimenters had to have is impressive in its own right. But really, it's just a really cool result. I mean waveness and particle-ness. It's one of the foundations of quantum mechanics and it's really lovely to see it being probed.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is interesting that you can quantify the amount of wave and particle nature of a system. So yeah, definitely a contender for the top 10 list. So that was number eight on our list uh, that we've picked. And the next one is, um, it's some research at the University of California, San Francisco, who've developed um, speech, and I'm going to have trouble saying this, neuroprothesis. Um, So Tammy, basically this is a way of you can kind of think of a word and speak it out. Do you want to, I haven't explained that at all well, but I'm sure you'll do a better job than me.
0: (laughs) Okay, so um, the team from the lab of Edward Chang is working to restore speech to paralyzed patients who've lost the ability to talk due to a brain injury, for example, or a neurological disorder. Now, as you can imagine, being unable to communicate can severely impact a person's quality of life. So David Moses, Sean Metzger, Jesse Louis, and colleagues developed a method based around an electrode array that's implanted on the surface of the brain. And it can translate brain signals directly into words on a screen.
1: So how does that electrode array work, Tammy? So you sit it on someone's head and how how does it pick up the signals?
0: Well, it's actually um, part of it's implanted in the brain. Um, And what it does is the array records electrical activity from the cortical brain regions that are involved in forming speech. And then it decodes these signals into words. So earlier this year, the team reported that they'd successfully tested this speech neuroprosthesis in the first clinical trial participant. And this was a man in his late 30s who'd suffered a brainstem stroke that severely damaged the connection between his brain and his vocal tract and limbs. And since his injury, he's had to communicate using a pointer on a baseball cap to touch letters on a screen. So he had this electrode array implanted in his brain on his speech motor cortex. Then the researchers used deep learning and language models to decode his brain waves as he attempted to produce words. So in this study, they used a set of 50 words that the system was trained to identify from patterns in the recorded brain activity. And by attempting to speak... The participant was able to produce individual words that appeared on a monitor and he could also use these words to create hundreds of short sentences. Now one important result was um, the speed at which this worked. So he could produce roughly 15 words per minute and this is around three times faster than using the computer-based interface that he currently uses to communicate. Now the researchers point out that Their study differs from previous efforts in that the system translates brain signals intending to control muscles of the vocal system. So basically, he's thinking about saying a word rather than thinking about moving his hand to type letters one at a time. And they say that this approach produces faster and much more natural communication.
1: So that sounds—I mean, for that person, it must be an amazing breakthrough. I presume, though, that, that was only within the confines of the lab. He can't can't go home with that, and uh, it's only a sort of experimental stage. So, what what's the next step for the team? Are there, are there going to be any real-world applications of this? Is this something other people could benefit from?
0: Yeah, I mean, this initial study was just on a single participant and also um, limited to this fifty-word vocabulary. So, yeah, definitely, the researchers plan to expand the trial to include more participants. And also, hopefully, to use the technology with people who have other severe conditions, such as locked-in syndrome. And they're also working to increase the number of words in the available vocabulary and to continually improve the rate of speech that they can produce.
1: All right. Thanks, Tammy. That's, I mean, you know, for those people, that sounds like, you a know, really promising breakthrough. Let's hope there's some progress with that. Great. So thanks, Tammy. So last but not least on the list of our top 10 breakthroughs of the year, we're back to quantum mechanics. And now this time, it's a pair of devices that could prove useful for the development of quantum technologies. Uh, Margaret, you're going you're to talk about these ones, these quantum drumheads.
2: Yeah, so this breakthrough is the work of two teams. The first is composed of Mika Silenpa and colleagues at Aalto University in Finland, and also at the University of South Wales in Canberra, Australia. The second independent group was led by Shlomi Kotler and John Teufel of the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology. And what both teams did is they showed that they could create a quantum entanglement between two vibrating drum heads. Now, these aren't drum heads like you play in a a band. They're they're very, very tiny. They're micro-manufactured. But they are macroscopic objects. The the NIST device, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology, had a mass of 70 picograms. So demonstrating that they can be entangled is really pushing the boundaries of the divide between the quantum and classical worlds. So you really usually think of quantum objects being things like atoms or ions or nuclear states or any of the other things we've talked about in this list of breakthroughs. But the idea that an actual object can be a quantum thing and can have quantum properties is really fascinating. And there's also a possibility that entangled resonators like these tiny vibrating drumheads could become the building blocks for quantum sensors or nodes in a quantum network.
1: I mean, it's not the first time the researchers have studied these sort of vibrating drum heads, is it? We've, we've seen some progress on this before, haven't
3: we?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's several research groups that have been doing exciting things with these itty-bitty drum heads for at least the past decade and actually beyond that. So in 2017, for example, members of the NIST team showed that they could cool one of these drum heads down to a few hundred microkelvin above absolute zero. And again, this is something you usually think of being able to do with atoms or ions or antihydrogen, for for example. But this cooling it down to a few hundred microkelvin above absolute zero really limits it to vibrating at a single frequency. So there's been a lot of work that's gone into this this, uh, sort of headline result of entangling two drumheads. Also, in in 2016, members of the Alto group used the same kind of drum head to create a super-sensitive detector from microwaves. So there are some other applications that groups like this are pursuing. I mean, going further back, you could say it's technically not the first time that macroscopic objects, in big fat scare quotes, have been entangled. Physics World actually first made that claim clear back in 2001, which is before I was on the magazine at least, when a group led by Eugene Polzik of the University of Aarhus in Denmark entangled two samples of cesium atoms. And that was a really great result for the time, but with all due respect, I mean, the goalposts have moved a lot since then. So although it's this result of entangling two vibrating drum heads, it's definitely part of a continuum. Um, I think there's a difference between atom clouds and an actual device that's been manufactured, you know, physically manufactured. And I think it really shows how researchers in this field are kind of pushing the boundaries, you know, is this quantum, is this classical, is this somewhere between what's, where is actually is the boundary between an object that's quantum and classical. And it's clear now that the boundary is a lot closer to the world of everyday objects than we maybe thought it was even as much as 10 years ago.
1: So thanks Margaret for that. And uh, that's the end of the list of the top 10 breakthroughs in physics for 2021. And I hope you'd agree that they represent a wide range of outstanding physics research. Um, So stay tuned for the Physics World website because on Tuesday the 14th of December, we'll be announcing which one of those top 10 is our breakthrough of the year. And it's been a difficult choice, hasn't it, Margaret?
2: Yes, it has. Um, we went back and forth over a lot of different possibilities, even just for the top 10 list. Um, there are many other results this year that we reported on that got at least one vote from some of our editorial team. So it's already a fantastic achievement to to be on this list of, of 10. And we, you notice we actually did squeeze a couple of extra results because we had competing groups who had done similar research that we've managed to squeeze in. Um, so yeah, so even even getting onto the, the short list of, of 10 is an amazing achievement. And we're all very excited about talking about the the breakthrough, the the top uh, results next week.
1: And it's no secret to reveal that it was a pretty close run thing between two of the entries. So uh, anyway, stay tuned for next week. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this week's podcast, which is sponsored by Blue Force. So thanks again to my colleagues, Tammy Freeman, Michael Banks, Margaret Harris, and Hamish Johnson for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer Fred Isles. So thanks for listening and do join us again next week for the Physics World breakthrough of the year.
0: Physics World